1: Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. We're your hosts, Ashley. And Ricky. And we're here to talk some true crime. We are. But before we jump in, we have some lovely patrons that we would love to shout out.
0: Tiffany, Elizabeth, Georgina.
1: Amanda, Ray, Michelle, and Marie. So thank you guys so much for your support. We really appreciate it. I do more. And before we jump into the Lululemon murder case, just a few things. If you see or hear something, even if you're not 100%, such as a blood-curdling scream from the building next door, begging for help, or if you hear someone shout, God help me, you should probably call the police. Once we get into the story, you'll see what I mean. And also, please let us warn you now that this episode will go over graphic content that may make some listeners uncomfortable. With that being said, listener discretion is advised. On March 11th, 2011, 28-year-old Brittany Norwood and 30-year-old Jana Murray were both working at Lululemon, which is an upscale athletic wear store located in Bethesda, Maryland. They had both finished their shift, locked the doors, and were headed home in opposite directions. Jana headed for her car in the parking garage, and Brittany headed towards the train. And within minutes of leaving, Brittany realized she had left her wallet locked inside the store with her train pass. She called a fellow employee, explaining the situation and asked if she had Jana's number. Luckily, Jana was still in the parking garage when Brittany called and agreed to go back into the store because she had also forgotten her laptop. Jaina was a student finishing up her second master's degree at John Hopkins University and needed her laptop to work on her thesis. Her boyfriend was coming to visit her the next weekend and she wanted to make sure that she had all of her assignments completed before his arrival. Jaina was only a few months away from graduation and had plans to move out of state to Seattle, Washington to live with her boyfriend and take a job at Lululemon headquarters. As Brittany arrived back at the store, she saw Jaina just about to unlock the door and disarm the alarm. Brittany thanked Jaina for coming all the way back because without her wallet, she would have been stranded. Jaina told her it wasn't a problem as she had forgotten something too. Then Jaina headed towards her laptop in the break room while Brittany looked for her wallet in the storeroom. Once they both had their things, they headed back out to the retail space to exit the store. And that is when two men wearing all black with black ski masks attacked both of the women. One of the men hit Gina over the head with a part of a display rack, and the other hit Brittany with his hand, rendering both women incapacitated. Then the men separated the women, attacking and raping them separately before ultimately leaving them for dead. It was the next morning, and the manager, Rachel, arrived shortly before 8 o'clock in the morning to open the store for the day and set up the register. As she walked up to the front door, the first thing that she noticed was the long line of people outside the adjacent Apple store. This was the second day of the new iPad 2 release, and the large crowds had made her store busier than usual. She was eager to get inside, set up for the day, and mentally prepare herself to deal with some troublesome HR issues from the day prior. The first thing she noticed as she approached the store was that the door wasn't locked from the night before. Initially, Rachel was irritated, assuming that Gina had forgotten to lock it. With merchandise like leggings going for $100 a pair, that could have been a very costly mistake. And when she stepped inside, she immediately thought someone took advantage of the unlocked door and helped themselves to the expensive merchandise. But she slowly began to focus and she noticed bloody footprints and realized something far more sinister may have occurred. In addition to the trail of blood, merchandise was all over the floor and displays were knocked over, leading her to believe that there was an altercation that took place. She tentatively took a few steps inside when she heard someone making noises in the back of the store as if they were in pain. She thought the assailant must be still inside and rushed outside to look for help. Rachel asked a man named Ryan Ha, who was in line waiting for the iPad to release, if he would go back inside the store with her to see if someone needed help. Once Ryan stepped inside, he heard wailing and moaning, leading him to believe someone might be injured. He told Rachel to wait outside as he started walking towards the sounds coming from the back rooms. The first thing that he saw was a bloody trail that covered the entire hallway, where something violent had clearly taken place. The entire pathway was soaked in blood. It appeared that someone put up a bold fight as there was blood reaching all the way up to the ceiling. He continued following the blood trail, intent on finding its source. Despite being terrified, he continued towards the sounds of someone in need of desperate help. That is when he called out for Rachel and told her not to come inside and instead to call the police and get an ambulance. Ryan came to a closed door and he tried to open it, but something heavy was blocking its path. As he pushed it open and peered inside, he saw a female body laying on her stomach in a pool of her own blood. It was clear from her extensive injuries that she had been dead and had been laying there for hours. The blood was coagulated and she was an unnatural color which meant the assailant was probably long gone. He noticed there was a large heavy looking red toolbox which someone had placed on top of the woman's back. Then he moved towards the pitiful mewling sounds and noticed a pair of legs. They were bound with the zip ties and the person's hands were zip tied as well over her head. She was too covered in blood, but appeared to still be alive. He noticed both the women had their leggings partially cut off of their body, which made him think they may have been sexually assaulted. Once police arrived, they headed straight towards the victim who was still alive, hoping for information on the responsible party or parties. Unfortunately, she was unresponsive and in need of immediate medical attention. That person turned out to be Brittany Norwood, and she had been taken by ambulance directly to Suburban Hospital. Police found the second victim, Jaina Murray, lying face down in a pool of her own blood. According to the book, The Yoga Shop Murders, by Dan Morse, Jana's attacker was much more brutal with her. She had been beaten with a display rod over the head, stabbed with a knife, hit with a hammer, mutilated with a box cutter, and left with a rope around her neck. She had been bludgeoned, stabbed, strangled, and sexually assaulted.
0: As part of the investigation, police learned that the Lululemon store shared walls with the Apple store directly next door. During the estimated time of attack, they learned that the Apple store employees were working late getting ready for the continued launch and release of the iPad 2 for the next day. When the investigators questioned the employees of the Apple store, they learned that the night before, some of the employees reported hearing a violent encounter through the walls. One employee put their ear to the wall and heard a sharp scream. She said it sounded like someone was gasping for air. They could hear sounds of dragging, grunting, thudding, and high-pitched squealing. One Apple Store employee asked a security guard if they should call the police. He said he didn't think it sounded too serious, and it was probably just people playing around or being dramatic. At most, he thought it might be a private argument, which didn't require intervention. For the next 90 minutes, the employees continued to hear noises, including yelling, pleading, and things being thrown around. At one point, they could hear a female voice, which sounded hysterical, saying, Talk to me. Don't do this. What's going on? Later, they heard the same voice say, God help me, please help me, talk to me, please stop doing this. Once the noises stopped, employees forgot all about it and left the store just after 11 p.m. The next day, they were horrified to learn about the brutal attack that took place. After speaking with the store manager, investigators learned that Jaina wasn't even scheduled to work that night, but had covered a shift for another employee. They needed to determine if either of the women were directly targeted. They also learned that Brittany was a new employee at the store and had only worked at the Bethesda location for a few weeks. She had just transferred in from another store location that was overstaffed. Brittany was described as friendly and outgoing by her coworkers and had quickly made friends with the other employees. She had a lot in common with Jaina as she was raised in Seattle, Washington, where Jaina planned to move, giving the two employees a lot to talk about. Brittany was raised in a lower middle class family with nine children. She was the sixth in the birth order. Her father supported the family working in his upholstery shop, and he taught the family to work hard for their dreams and never give up. All of his children lived this motto, becoming doctors, engineers, and business owners themselves. And Brittany had dreams too. In high school, she was a soccer star who had many colleges looking to recruit her with full scholarships. That's how she wound up at Stony Brook University in New York. After leaving Stony Brook, she had briefly worked in the hotel business before changing course and working retail for Lululemon. Britney had plans to eventually work as a personal fitness trainer for high-level athletes. She looked at Lululemon as an opportunity to meet the kind of people who could help her fulfill those dreams. The day Brittany was attacked, she had a job interview later in the week at a fitness center with the type of clientele she always dreamed of working with.
1: Officer O'Brien accompanied their only living witness to the hospital, hoping he could speak to her as soon as she was awake. In the ambulance, he observed a number of cuts and lacerations on her chest, legs, arms, and forehead. The cut on her forehead was the worst of them all, spanning three inches in length. She also had a two-inch laceration on her right hand that ran parallel to her thumb that appeared to be a defensive wound while fighting off someone with a knife. Once they were at the hospital, Brittany reluctantly reported being raped and then assaulted with a coat hanger. She appeared to be in shock and wasn't fully able to assist in the investigation. However, the sexual assault examination surprisingly revealed no evidence of rape. Detective Deanna Mackey of the Montgomery County Police Department met with Brittany while she was still in the hospital the following day. By that time, she was surrounded by family who were all thankful she survived her harrowing ordeal. They knew she was lucky to be alive. Surrounded by unconditional love and support, Brittany was finally able to fill in some of the details. The first thing she asked about was if her friend Jaina was okay. She hadn't been told yet that Jaina had died. Brittany was devastated when she received the news that Jaina didn't survive. Brittany explained that at the start of her attack, she was hit over the head with an unknown object, which caused her to go in and out of consciousness. As a result, her memory was filled with blank spots. She told investigators that she and Jaina were getting ready to leave the store for the second time that night, and they realized they hadn't locked the front door behind them. That is when a tall man over six feet came out from behind a clothing display and struck Jaina over the back of the head with a metal bar he had broken off from a clothing rack. And almost instantly, another man, who was also dressed in black with his face covered by a ski mask, simultaneously attacked Brittany. She said that he was a few inches taller than her, which would put him in the five foot five five six range. He grabbed Brittany by the hair and began cutting off her leggings to assault her. He told her he would slit her throat and kill her if she tried to fight or make a sound. Brittany saw the taller man drag Jaina to the back hallway as he dragged her past them to the employee bathroom. While raping her, he used racial slurs and called her a dirty slut. He also told her he wasn't going to hurt her if she was, quote, easy to fuck. During the attack, Brittany could hear Jaina fighting and screaming for her life, begging the assailant not to hurt her. And Brittany was hysterical as she told police about her own brutal rape that at one point included the man inserting a coat hanger inside her. She told police that the employees in the Apple store, which was located right next door, may have heard part of the attack. They began knocking on the walls and asking if everyone was okay. And that is when a man placed a knife to her neck and told her not to make a sound. He pulled her to her feet and instructed her to open the three safes located in the store and the cash register where he took out all of the money. Police surmised the true motive for the attack was robbery and the assaults on the women were crimes of opportunity. Investigators believed the reason Gina's injuries were more extensive and ultimately fatal were because Gina fought back so hard. Since Brittany cooperated, they allowed her to live or may have believed she would die from her injuries before help could arrive. In fact, when Ryan Ha first found Brittany zip-tied in the bathroom, he believed she may have been dead as she had gone silent. With the description from Brittany, police began looking for a surveillance video, hoping for a break. Unfortunately, there weren't any surveillance cameras inside the store or facing the front of the store. In fact, the only camera was outside the back of the store facing the alleyway. A little after midnight, after the Apple Store employees had all gone home, they saw two men both dressed in black with their hoods up and also one wearing a black backpack. They were coming from the direction of Lululemon, walking away and towards the Apple Store with their backs to the camera. Unfortunately, the quality of the footage wasn't good enough to get a photo of their faces or note any distinctive features. Without any other leads, they released the grainy footage to the media asking for help from the public in identifying the two men. When the men went unidentified for 24 hours, police, with the assistance of Lululemon, offered a $150,000 award for the identity and conviction of the two men. While waiting on an identification from the public, the police began closely studying the crime scene. They knew that one of the assailants had dragged Brittany back out to the retail area to open the register in the store safes, which explained her footprints in blood. However, there was one set of unidentified bloody footprints in a men's size 14 Reebok brand shoe that police surmised through a process of elimination belonging to one of the killers. They began trying to find a pattern in the footprints to understand the sequence of events. Investigators assumed this print belonged to the taller assailant who attacked and killed Jaina Murray. The pattern didn't make sense as it would sometimes head into one direction and then seemingly disappear. It was often accompanied by a little mark in blood to the left or right of the print. One of the officers noticed a big basket of athletic shoes located in the dressing room area. They were for customers to try on and wear to make sure the clothing fit properly. They weren't actually for sale in the store. As the officer went through the shoes, he found a size 14 Reebok shoe that matched the exact tread pattern on the bloody footprints. However, the shoes he was holding were clean and pristine. They weren't sure if this was a crazy coincidence or if the attackers had used the shoes to throw off investigators. Since the prints at one point ended at the sink, they believed that could be a real possibility. They decided to question Brittany again and see if she had any information on what the attackers' shoes may have looked like or if she saw them trying to alter the crime scene in any way with the shoes. Brittany still hadn't recovered, but she had been released from the hospital and was finally home with her family. That interview took place on the 14th, three days after the attack. The meeting had been arranged in advance by telephone with Brittany's dad and brother, who were both in attendance. Detective Dimitri Ruven and Detective James Drury began by introducing themselves to the family and letting them know that they were assigned to Britney and Jana's case. Only a small portion of the conversation was taped. Police wanted Brittany to feel comfortable, so they asked her to start her story from the beginning of the night. They were hoping she would recall new details, which can sometimes show up later after suffering this kind of trauma. She went through the story again, including the details of her brutal rape, She added that one of the attackers told her the only reason he didn't kill her was because she was, quote, fun to fuck, end quote. She told them the attackers had her name and address, which they had got off items she had in her purse. She also told them that at one point her attacker pushed her on top of Jaina's body, which explained why she was covered in Jaina's blood in addition to her own. She became emotional during the conversation and looked down a lot, unable to look at the officers while describing some of the more degrading details she had to endure. She also told investigators that based on the voices of the assailants and the racially charged words they used during her attack, that both men were Caucasian. She also surmised that they were in their mid-20s. She told the officers that her family wanted to take her back to Seattle where they could care for her, but she was determined to remain in Bethesda to testify against her attackers once they were found and get justice for Gina. Brittany's third interview took place at the police station on March 16th, 2011. At this meeting, they asked her to come in and provide elimination fingerprints and hair and DNA samples. They also wanted to photograph her bruises and injuries. This interview was video recorded. She again went through the details of the attack with very little changes. When police asked her if she knew what type of car Jana drove, she said she didn't know and she never had been inside of it. They also asked Brittany again if she could remember any more about the assailant's shoes. This line of questioning seemed to bother Brittany she quickly said she didn't know anything about them and made an obvious attempt to change the subject. In fact, when police tried to go back to the shoes, Brittany became rude and said, we've already discussed that. Next. Her behavior in the interview made investigators want to take a closer look at their victim and completely eliminate her as a suspect. After she left, they decided to have her come back in one more time for a slightly more aggressive interrogation. However, before they could arrange it, her brother called them and said that Brittany had some more information that she wanted to share with them. They assumed she had remembered more details. She was unable to come in the next day, so they scheduled that interview for the 18th. For the interview on the 18th, Brittany was accompanied by her brother, Chris Norwood, and her sister, Marissa Norwood. And during this interview, Brittany was more contrite than her last interview when she began getting frustrated and combative. Although she believed that their shoes may have been black, the matching print pattern of the shoe found at Lululemon in the store sample bin was white. They were still waiting for forensics to come back on the shoe to see if they could find any trace amounts of blood. During the interview, she abruptly changed the subject and announced why she was really there. She began by saying, all right, all right, I'm here because of Jaina's car. She said when Jaina came back to let her inside the store that Jaina had illegally double parked her car. She probably parked that way because she only expected to be there for a few minutes. She said before she was sexually assaulted, the shorter assailant made her move Jaina's car to a different parking lot. She told them the attackers were watching her the entire time and threatened to come and kill her if she talked to anyone or didn't come straight back. She told them that she went alone to move the car, and while moving it, she saw a police officer in a patrol car, but she did not want to try to attract his attention or notify him because she was too afraid. When asked why she returned to the Lululemon store, she again explained she was terrified to disobey her attackers and they knew where she lived as her purse and wallet were still inside the store. So police asked for more details and suddenly Brittany got very irritated again and snapped at the officer saying, we've been over this. They informed Brittany that each time they talked to her, she would slightly change her story or the sequence of events. That is when Detective Drury told Brittany he didn't believe her story and knew she was lying and he could prove it with evidence. He told her they had already located the police officer and he first noticed someone sitting in Jana's car with the lights on and not moving or exiting the vehicle. When he came back around an hour later, the car was still sitting there with someone still inside and the lights on. Two hours later, the car was in the same spot with the lights off and no one inside. By that time, Jaina was already dead. So by her own admission, that person had to be Brittany. They told her it didn't make any sense for her to sit in Jana's car for 90 minutes unless she was concocting an alibi. They also found both Jana and Brittany's blood inside the car as well as fingerprints and hair belonging to Brittany. The police invited Brittany's siblings inside the interrogation room and told them they thought Brittany was lying and was responsible for Jana's murder. Investigators told her siblings that Brittany was suspected of stealing at the first Lululemon store she worked at from both employees and from the store itself. They explained that this was the real reason the store transferred her to the Bethesda store. There was even talk about setting up a hidden camera to catch Brittany stealing. They then left Brittany inside the interrogation room with her siblings. Chris and Marissa, asked Brittany if she did this. And she put her head in her hands and said, I've ruined our family. At the time of that fourth interview with Brittany, investigators had already been very productive in gathering evidence. They learned that instead of firing Brittany when they first suspected of her stealing, the company chose to transfer her to the Bethesda store instead. Britney's new manager was already aware there were allegations of theft surrounding Britney and had other employees watching her very closely. Within days of being at the new store, things began disappearing from coworkers' purses and from inventory. The store had a mandatory bag check each night for all of their employees which began when Britney started. The night of the 11th, Jaina asked Brittany to look inside her bag where she found a pair of leggings with the tags attached. She asked Brittany for a receipt and Brittany told her that the employee who sold her the leggings forgot to give her a receipt. So Jaina said, okay, that's fine. I'll check with the employee tomorrow. Have a nice night and Brittany left. That's when Jaina called the employee and confirmed that she had never sold Brittany a pair of leggings. Jaina then called Rachel, her manager, and said, quote, we've got that lion bitch, end quote. Then Jaina set the store alarm, locked the front door, and headed to her car in the parking garage. And within minutes of leaving, Jaina got the call from Brittany that said she left her wallet and her train pass inside the store. Investigators believe that Brittany lured Jana back into the store where she viciously attacked and killed her, and then staged it to look like a robbery, all in an effort to keep Jana from discovering she had stolen the leggings. Not realizing that Jana had already caught her and informed Rachel. Later that afternoon of the 18th, Brittany was arrested for Jana Murray's murder. Seven months later, Brittany went to trial where the depravity of her actions were finally revealed. It was determined from the evidence that the attack had to have lasted at least 17 minutes and probably longer. Jaina was alive for each and every injury up until the very last one. The medical examiner, Mary Ripple, determined there were 331 separate injuries to Gina's body. She testified that, I believe, she was alive for all of them. She testified that Gina had sustained at least 331 injuries that included brain bruising, stab wounds, strangulations, chipped teeth, and finally a severe trauma to the base of Gina's brain. Ripple testified, that area of your brain is pretty critical to you being able to function. She wouldn't have lived very long after that. She would not have been able to have any voluntary movement to defend herself. Jaina had an extraordinary will to live as evidenced by the blood spatter patterns on the wall. It was clear that at one point, Jaina was standing for the assault, probably wounded so badly she could no longer defend herself as she slid down the wall from a standing position to a fetal position, trying to protect her head with her extremities. And that effort resulted in 105 defensive wounds to Jaina's hands, arms, and legs. The red toolbox was usually kept next to where Jaina had finally fallen. From the evidence, it shows that Brittany used multiple tools within the toolbox to try to end Jaina's life. When the employees next door could hear Jana's gasping, that is when they believed Brittany went into the employee break room, found a knife, and inserted it into the base of Jana's neck, severing her brainstem and her spinal cord. The medical examiner said that the last and final injury was Jana's cause of death. During the trial, the prosecutor presented evidence that wherever Brittany went. Thefts followed. In fact, she was expelled from Stony Brook University for stealing out of the locker of a teammate. She also stolen from family members and close friends as a child. Many witnesses described Brittany as a klepto. The jury was also told that those odd marks found next to the size 14 Reebok footprints were made by the shoelaces. In the process of planting false evidence, she inadvertently dipped the shoelaces into Jaina's blood as well. And as for the two men seen on the surveillance video, they were identified, and it turns out they were kitchen workers at the restaurant up the street. They had just finished their shift and were leaving for the night when they were caught on surveillance camera. The prosecution gave the jury a timeline of events that neatly fit the evidence. They said on the night of March 11th at 9.45 p.m., Brittany left the store, followed by Jaina a few minutes later. Within minutes of Brittany leaving, Jaina called Rachel, the store manager, and reported finding the stolen merchandise inside of Brittany's bag. A few minutes after that, Brittany, realizing she had been caught and would likely be fired, set a trap for Jaina, luring her back into the store with the intention of permanently silencing her. At 10.05 p.m., Britney met Jaina back at the store, and Jaina believed that this would be just a quick errand and double-parked her car in front of the store. And within minutes, the employees at the adjacent Apple store heard two women yelling at each other for at least 20 minutes. The prosecution told the jury that the length of the attack showed premeditation. At any point, Britney could have stopped the attack and allowed Jaina to live. Sometime after 11 o'clock p.m., Brittany moved Jana's car three blocks away where she sat in the car for 90 minutes, calming herself down and deciding what to do next. It's then Brittany makes the decision to make herself look like the victim, too. She walked the quarter mile back to the store and created the evidence to support her story that she and Jana were the victims of two male attackers. She cuts Jana's pants, and then her own, to create the illusion of a sexually motivated assault. Then she puts on the size 14 men's Reebok shoes, forgetting to tie them, and walked through the blood, creating the evidence of a second assailant. Next, she made superficial cuts on her forehead, stomach, legs, and neck. She then zip-tied herself to the pipe under the sink in the bathroom, ready to present herself as a victim of a violent and vicious assault knowing Rachel would be arriving in the morning to open the store. Brittany's defense lawyer didn't deny that Brittany was responsible for Jana's death. However, he argued it was second-degree rather than first-degree murder. He believed that Brittany snapped in a moment of rage without any premeditation involved. The jury began their deliberations with a simple vote, and within two minutes, all jurors had voted guilty for first-degree murder. However, they thought they had a duty to Brittany and the justice system to see if they could agree on reducing the charges down to second-degree murder. In less than an hour, the jury realized their first vote was the correct verdict. Brittany intentionally, with premeditation, murdered Gina in a surprise blitz attack all over the price of a pair of leggings. At the time of the murder, police discovered that Brittany was working as a call girl and using sugar daddy sites to supplement her income. She also had a recurring ad on Craigslist under personal services. Brittany also had a card in her wallet for a prostitution counseling group. But none of that evidence was allowed to come into trial as it was more prejudicial than probative. Other than proving Britney's finances were to the point she was looking for other ways to supplement her income, investigators never found the money Jaina took from the safe and believed she hid it somewhere with the intention of retrieving it later. During sentencing, Judge Robert Greenberg angrily condemned Britney's actions, telling her she was one hell of a liar. He said, after every blow, you had a chance to think about what you were doing. Then he sentenced her to life in prison without the possibility of parole to the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women. After Brittany was sentenced, she addressed the Murray family. She told them, quote, I hope for the Murray family, someday you'll be able to find forgiveness in your heart. I'm truly sorry. This completes this week's episode of Crime Salad. We will see you next week.
0: Crime Salad is a weird salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.